night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Daniel Siegel, award-winning educator and psychiatrist, and author of The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. Can't get your kids to raise their eyes from the screen? Unsure of how to help a child who gets angry when they lose their soccer game or gets a bad grade in school? Parents across the globe face these common dilemmas, what Dr. Daniel Siegel calls no-brain response. He offers advice and tools to help turn a no-brain into a yes-brain by cultivating a child's ability to say yes to the world, to take more chances, and be less worried about making mistakes. Dr. Siegel, clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, is the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. Welcome to the show, Dr. Siegel. Nice to have you on this morning. Catherine, thanks for having me on. All right, so we, you know, you, we, you're talking about how to cultivate courage, curiosity, and resilience in your child. Resilience is one of those words that uh, keeps popping up, when, you know, with, child, with psychologists, educators, psychiatrists like yourself. It sort of, it seems to me that kind of the new buzzword for, for kids, you know, you'll be successful, you do well if you're resilient. Yes, Yeah, resilience is a very interesting word, and people use it in slightly different ways. But essentially what it means is an inner strength so that you can have this kind of broad way of of facing challenges and not being thrown into either chaos or rigidity, essentially, is when we get off our, our game, you know, when we're not doing well. So resilience is both building this kind of wider spectrum of feelings you can feel and interactions you can have and situations you can deal with. And it's also learning the skill. This would be more maybe what you'd call balance. Learning the skill of how to actually detect what's going on in you. And when you are in chaos or rigidity, actually having the skills of bringing yourself back into this more harmonious flow. So resilience can be used in those two ways. It's how you create balance. It's how you have an an internal compass, basically, that guides you no matter what storm you're in. Okay, so for, these, for, the, for children, we want to uh, cultivate the resilience and also the courage and the curiosity. So how do we do that? I mean, I know you have very specific strategies in your book for doing it, so maybe we should go through some of those. Absolutely. Well, overall, you know, so, so people can know the, the, the general approach, is we have four components to what a yes brain strategy would be. And the first thing you might ask is, well, if someone is telling me I should have a yes brain approach to parenting, does that mean I say yes to everything, you know? So the first important thing Tina Bryson, my co-author, and I really want everyone to know is that the yes brain approach is actually not about saying yes to everything. It's not about permissive parenting whatsoever. What it is, is when you do, and I do this in workshops a lot, and we can do it now with your listeners if you want, I do this practice where you say no harshly several times, I pause, then I say yes soothingly several times, and then we do a couple of other things. And the person who participates in that exercise realizes that the brain gets in a very reactive state when I say no harshly. And that includes four Fs of fighting, fleeing, freezing, and even 
fainting, just collapsing in response to a feeling of helplessness. It's when we feel threatened. And in contrast, a yes brain state is when you turn on what Steve Porges, the scientist, calls the social engagement system. And that's when your muscles relax, you become more open, you engage with other people, you're more receptive to learning. That receptive state we just call a yes brain state. So the first thing to say about the yes brain approach is it's not permissive parenting. It's actually where you're tuning into the internal state of your child and giving them this sense that who I am is a good person even though the behaviors I may do or ask to do are not appropriate and I need to learn to change my behavior, who I am is a solid citizen. So how, do we, how does this apply, let's take, with a child? How do you start being able to be able to do this? For instance, I have a grandson who's two. Let's yes. take a two-year-old. Great. So give me an example uh, that, that came up recently and we'll walk you through a no-brain response and a yes-brain response to talk about the skills you use and the principles that kind of guide you in this approach as a grandma. Okay, I'll give you an example. Uh, This morning at breakfast, sitting in a high chair, wanting to have a plastic knife because he wanted to butter his own bagel. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and, And when you took the knife away from him, as a two-year-old, he's screaming and crying, and he wants it back. Yes, great. So is that a good example? Said, well, that's a great example. That's a great okay. example. Now, so what, what was said to him uh, when the knife was being taken away? Probably, um, you know, telling him that he can't have a knife and we'll, you know, butter the bagel for him or, um, or just immediately taking it away because you don't want him to have the knife. So uh, trying to soothe him, but not necessarily too successful. Okay. So first of all, exactly. So first of all, (laughs) two, as you know, is a challenging time. So let's just talk about uh, the the general strategy. So a, a way that you want to just approach it as a grandparent or anyone caring for the development of a child, really, um, is this. So your two-year-old, what's his name? Avi. Avi. Okay, so Avi says, or he's not saying anything, he's grabbing the knife and Mm -hmm. going for the bagel. And you know, as a two-year-old, he could poke into his eye, he could do things that are not good, it could harm him. So, of course, the first thing we want to do is keep our child safe. Absolutely. And sometimes your hand has got to go reach out for that knife so it doesn't do anything to his body that is really bad because he's two and he doesn't know exactly what to do with objects that are dangerous or even the motion of his body. So there's one thing is just emergencies. You know, if your kid is running into the, the street, you yell no, you know. So absolutely. So there's emergencies about safety. And so let's assume you're there, you can have your hand on the knife, and now let's talk about a no-brain statement. A no-brain statement would go something like this. No, you can't have that knife. That's really bad. No, and you pull it away from him. So you can even feel maybe how I said it just now on this interview. Uh-huh. That creates a feeling in the brain with the deeper structures in the brain that there is something very threatening happening right now. I am really not safe, so I've got to fight back. I've got to run away if I can. That's the flee. I've got to 
tighten up my muscles because I don't know what to do. This is so dangerous. Or I, for some kids, actually, they go into a collapse mode, a faint mode, because they feel completely helpless. Now, of course, the caregiver loves the child, only wants the best for the child, and you can understand protecting the child in that situation. But here's another way to do it if you've been practicing it yourself as a grandparent or a parent. It goes like this. Avi takes the knife. Okay, you're really worried about it, so you reach over maybe and hold the knife, not pull it away yet, and you say, this is so exciting to have a knife, isn't it? You're so interested in buttering that bread because you can scoop out the butter and put it on your bagel, and oh, you're, you, you really want to try it out. That's so exciting. I want you to try it out too. You know, let's do this together. Because here's the butter. You bring the little tub of butter over, and you go, let's do it. And now maybe he's going to get upset because he wants to do it by himself. And you can even say, of course you want to do it by yourself. And what happens now with, the, with a knife is we will help you with a knife, and I see you want to try it out, and let's give it a try, right? So then you scoop it, and hopefully, you know, he's going to respond in a different way than just pulling the knife away or saying, no, don't do that. Because what you're doing here in this strategy is, you're connecting with him, seeing that he wants to try out buttering his bagel before you redirect. Connect before you redirect is a basic skill we talk about in whole brain child too, but it's an essential feature for any relationship actually, you know, where before you try to redirect someone's behavior, tune in, connect to what they're feeling. And he's excited about learning to be a person who butters their own bagel. Good for him, you know. So that's how I would approach it. Well, that's a great example, and I guess, and obviously, in, it, what you say in the book is you have to, you have to, as a parent or as a grandparent, you need to practice this all the time, right? And then it becomes sort of, it's, well, second nature to the to the parent or the caregiver, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, responding in that way. Now, that's an example of something that it is dangerous. Okay, having a knife running out in the street, those kinds of things. So you do have to get the that maybe. A little more difficult than, let's say, let's talk about, because this is an example that you have, winning the bedtime battle without a fight. Okay, that, yes. that's not, yeah. there's no danger in that, but there's, you know, at least not in the short term. So, right, right. Yeah. Well, that's a really, that's another great example. I mean, and here's, here's the thing about it. You know, um, we as parents and grandparents and anyone caring for a kid, you know, we've got to take a deep breath and make sure we're doing our own internal work. So let's say you have an attitude, oh my God, I've, I've read so much about sleep. Sleep is so important. This child of mine has got to go to sleep. They've got to go to sleep. They've got to go, they gotta, gotta go to sleep. Right? Like so you're bringing that no-brain state, even the interaction of having your child go to bed. Children you know, are like radars. They pick up our internal state of mind, our feelings, our intentions, our attitudes, our worries. And so we need to first do our own work, and that's in a yes-brain approach to parenting. And these are part of the, every chapter in the yes-brain book. You know, it says yes-brain for you, the reader, you know, and then there's a yes-brain for kids and then the overall stories. So you say, okay, I need to take a deep breath and realize this has been difficult for my child because I've been working, I come home, he's all revved up because he wants to be with me, and, and I can understand that. So I'm going to really put all my stuff down. I'm not going to do any kind of screen time myself. I'm not going to be checking my phone. I'm going to actually be with my child because that's what my child needs. Now, this is before bedtime. Then when bedtime comes, 
your child's need for connection with you and the reason he wants to stay up has been shifted. You've taken care of whatever sleep hygiene issues go on and, and just to make sure everybody knows, you know, you want to start turning the lights down before bedtime, you know, not off but lower. You want to make sure their child, depending on his or her age, isn't having screens in their face, you know, at least an hour before they go to bed, if not sooner. I think it's better several hours um, so that it's not stimulating their brain and, and reducing the way the brain has to get ready for sleep time. You want to have a regular routine if you can, you know, taking a bath, brushing your teeth, getting your pajamas, you know, doing everything you do as regularly as you can if possible. And then the brain will start getting ready for sleep time before you even say the word sleep or bed. And so you've set that up, and now inside of you, you're really at peace. And this child needs to sleep, and she or he knows they need to sleep. And so you all kind of go in, and then you give them a hug. There's all sorts of issues about where you are physically when your child falls asleep, but you've worked all those details out. And in this Yes Brain approach, what you're doing is you're actually tuning in to the two things. Your child wants to hang with you, so you do that before bedtime. And then your child needs to sleep, and that's a deep need they had, and you're helping them do that. Yeah, so it's not this kind of abrupt, you get everything else done, and now it's time for bed. And this, it's sort of, it, you ease the, I guess you're helping manage, managing these emotions by kind of easing them into bed, right? Exactly. It's a process. It's a process. It's a process that, you know, I, listen, a lot of adults I talk to, and you, Catherine, you can tell me how it is for you, but I noticed until I did that for myself, you know, when my kids were younger, I was doing all sorts of work on the computer late into the night, and I would be all revved up, and I'd be trying to get them to bed, and they're revved up because I'm revved up, and we're all revved up, and they've been on computers. I mean, it's just, it, it, you know, we are living human beings. We are, you know, organisms that need adjustment to our nervous system. You don't just sit on a screen, brush your teeth, and then a minute later you're falling asleep. It doesn't work like that. So we need to respect the fact we live in a body and that our kids live in bodies too. Yeah, I think that's a good example. And I, I kind of wanted to ask you about that because what about iPads and iPhones? I mean, I, I know that my grandson can use an iPad and an iPhone. <laughs> uh, and that's pretty typical at two. Or yeah, the iPad. I know, I know. Listen, yeah. I was in New York recently. I was eating at a restaurant. Next to me, this little cute little kid was having her first birthday. And what was her present? A smartphone. And yeah. there at the birthday party, all three parents, the two parents and the child, the three in the family, they were all on their phone for the rest of the party. Yeah. And, and that's let's just build, yeah. let's build on that because this okay. is the iPad story with your grandson and this is the same as two-year-old we're talking about? Yeah. Which, yes. Yeah. So let's talk about that because, uh, you know, here's a yes brain approach to the whole thing about screens. You know, we, you have two kinds of sight. You have physical sight for seeing the physical world of light and hearing sound and stuff like that, this perception of the outside world. Then you have what I call mind sight, right, which Tina and I talk about a lot in, the, in all of our books. But in Yes Brain, it, it, it's identified as the essential aspect of building a Yes Brain. So physical sight can compete with mind sight in the following ways. You give a one-year-old, like that family I saw, or your two-year-old grandson, you give them this object that is incredibly compelling 
on purpose. That's why it's made this way, you know, to get physical sight all activated. You're seeing colors go by and quickly shifting scenes and lots of stimuli, sounds, all the things that's happening. You can touch it and respond. That's all physical sight. So we have a, a responsibility as the older generation, as the adults, to take a deep breath and start with ourselves and make sure we're not overly activated by this physical sight-based screen technology that has now taken over the world. I was, I was um, on a subway the other day in New York, and, you know, I just glanced up. I would say about 90% at least of everybody on that train, they were on their phones. No one was talking to each other. So what's happening now, and it can start at one year of age, is we are training the brain to not tune into the mind of others or of the self, right? Because mind sight is seeing your feelings, your thoughts, your dreams, your memories, in yourself, that's insight, and in others, that's empathy. These are, we'll talk about the four basics of, of the yes brain approach in a moment, but those are two of them. And so what mind sight is, is it's saying to your, your child, you know, Avi, your grandson, you'd say, hey, you know, let me tell you a story about, you know, this big bear that I saw at the zoo the other day. You make something up. You know, you can tell them it's a story. But the idea is that we are narrative creatures. And you need to come up with something as compelling as these screens that super smart engineers have designed to grab the eyeballs of everyone, ultimately to sell stuff. You know, it's really this big advertisement. Um, And so you have a task. You know, you want to engage, Avi, in ways we, that stories can really be good, where you're animated, you have this emotion going on, you tell the story of the bear, what happened at the zoo, and the bear was, you know, throwing things out with his paw, and they were landing outside his cage, and people were looking at all the different things. I mean, you can make up a fun story. And then over time, when Avi sees you, when he sees his grandma, He's going to want the story about the bear and what happened this week with the bear and what's going to happen next week. And you can tune into his excitement. You can tune into the feelings of the bear, of the people at the zoo. And that's what Mindsight is all about, is gaining empathy for what happens in other people. That is a gateway to insight into ourselves. And we are truly narrative creatures, Mindsight creatures, but these gadgets are really shutting that down. You know, uh, there's a... As you say, you're on the subway and everybody, and I see that every day. I'm in New York. I see that every day. Not, you're right. 90% of the people are on their iPhones or on their phones. And with this generation, I think there's, uh, and this is what you've been talking about, they're, they have, they have a lot of difficulty connecting emotionally because that's that, just that emotional connection, which, you know, obviously um, precipitates a lot of different kinds of negative behavior and all that. But, um, but what, what about, I mean, from a practical standpoint, you, you know, you're a psychiatrist and, and what you said, you, you want to connect with your child and you want to talk to them and you want to create a narrative. But what about the mother who's standing there who's worked all day and she has three kids and it's very easy to put that, you know, the screen up in front of at least one of the kids to keep them occupied. How often can you do I mean, it's not all or nothing, is it? 
No, not at all. You know, especially, you know, I work with a group where we're trying to create more empathy building screen time stuff, you know, which I think can be done. And so hopefully soon we'll have some of that stuff available. But, you know, stories are great. I mean, there's some really beautiful stories that can be told on screens. So, you know, I would look at, you know, there's a a website, I think it's called Common Sense or I forgot the the actual formal name, but, but they've screened a lot of these things. And some some apps are really actually uh, full of narratives. So you want to you want to aim for something that's more like that. And of course, you know we have to be a part of the culture we're in. And and the idea is balance, not just removing something totally from someone's life. Now, on the other hand, in during the week, it is helpful. I, I found in my family growing up, you know, uh, that is raising my kids who are now in their twenties. You know, it was really helpful to have a very clear thing. We don't watch television during the week. And they could read a book or they could do other, take out a piece of paper and draw. For an older kid, you know, this is really essential to learn to have downtime, to be on your own, to get bored and know what to do about it. That's a part of resilience. So that's actually an opportunity. But I understand if there's a, a mom or dad who's like overwhelmed, you have three kids, lots is going on. Sure, you can use screen time and use it just intentionally that, okay, I need this. This is not what I need. But then make sure that child has a balance of other things in their life at other times. Right. Right. So it is about balance. Um, totally. Yeah. So we only have a few minutes left, and oh, <laughs> everybody has to go and buy the book. a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but I, one of the, because I think this is an important, particularly important issue that parents have to deal with, encouraging your child to do something new, even if they're nervous. How do you do that? I mean, I yeah. think that's, Yeah. Oh, you have these great examples. Well, that is a beautiful example. We, we touch on this in the book, and the strategy we talk about for developing these four things, you know, balance is this ability to feel a wide range of feelings and experiencing them fully. Um, you build that balance by widening that with what we call resilience. So this spells the acronym BRI, balance is B, R is resilience. Insight is feeling the inner life that's going on in you, and empathy is you know, seeing the inner life of someone else. So this example is a great example on how to build the brie of a yes brain approach. So it goes like this. The strategy, this specific strategy, is is it a time for pushing or a time for the cushion? And that fun phrase, pushing or cushion, is the idea that sometimes kids are so overwhelmed and so frightened that they need to sit down on a cushion with you, you know, sit down on the couch, sit down on a chair, sit down with you. You can give them a hug. You can talk to them about what they're feeling. They can talk to you about how they're scared to go swimming and their swimming lesson, you know, and you can say, yeah, I know last time it was really hard because you got some water up your nose and it felt really frightening. Ah, yeah, let's just remember that, that it was frightening. It didn't feel good. And then you got out of the pool and you felt better. So maybe now you're feeling like just staying out of the pool is what you want to do. Yeah, but Sammy is uh, he's learning how to swim and I want to learn how to swim too. Yeah, that's right. So let's take a deep breath and realize even though you may feel fear now, and it's understandable because you've got water in your nose, you can actually take a deep breath and a feeling of fear is, is a feeling. It doesn't mean you can't go in the pool. So that's the cushion part, right? The pushing part, even for this interaction, would be, you know, I'm going to go with you to your swimming lesson this time, and I'm going to sit on the side of the pool, and you can sit on my lap. And when you feel ready, you can try going in the shallow end of the pool, and I'll be there the whole time, 
and you'll see. And in fact, if you want me to get in the pool, yeah, I will. So you do this. I have a, actually have a, a child where I did this with him, and this was exactly what let him go from a fear of trying something like swimming to ultimately holding on to me when I was in the pool for his lesson to trying it out, and then within you know three or four minutes, he was swimming like a dolphin. It was beautiful, and he realized he learned from that that I could hear his words, I could feel his feelings, I could not push him beyond what he was capable of doing, but with the cushion part of it, I could scaffold him. I mean, Lev Vygotsky talked about this as a zone of proximal development. I could be there letting him achieve something he could do with my support and then learned it as a skill that he could do without my physical presence there. And now he loves swimming. So this is exactly what a yes brain approach is all about, is really thinking through what's the cushion that's needed now? What's the cushion? How do I actually give my child the experience that, oh, I once was afraid of being in the pool. I went through my fear. I didn't deny my fear. I acknowledged my fear. My mom or dad or grandma, grandpa saw my fear and guess what? I actually did something I was afraid of, and now I like doing it. I mean, that is a yes brain. Mm-hmm. That's the yes brain. Okay, let's give, well, that's a great example. I think we have time for, like, one more example of the yes brain, like getting your child to eat new foods that might yeah, seem scary, because yeah. that's a so, big issue. Right, so it's a balance here. You know, um, we all, you know, I'm, I'm a science person as well as an educator and a parent myself and a therapist. So with all these backgrounds, the science of that is you've got a brain that both loves new things and loves familiar things. So you've got these two things going on, right? So in the reward circuit of the brain, there is a drive for novelty. There truly is. And simultaneously, at the same time, there's a drive for predictability, right? And different kids, depending on their temperament or their experiences, will have one of these drives be either a little stronger than the other one or a lot stronger. So you'll see kids diving into the deep end of the pool, and they're really unfamiliar with that, and they don't care. It's novel. They want to see what it's like, and that can be a problem. Or now we're talking about the opposite, trying out a new food. And, Catherine, you're talking to the wrong person because... I only ate like three foods until I was about 12. But, <laughs> Not a good example. So, yeah, it's a perfect example. So here's um, what didn't happen with me, but what you, know, you could do in a yes brain approach, which is you say to a child, you know. And we have one and a half minutes left. Okay, good. Well, not enough to eat the food, but to talk about it. So here's what we can do with a yes brain approach with this. You acknowledge your child's feeling of discomfort with something new. Let's say he, uh, he, I'll talk about myself, you know, only eats, you know, um, I don't know, white bread, no brown bread, right? So you want them to try whole wheat bread, something like that, although bread's not a good example these days. Anyway, um, so you're trying something new. Now, what you would do is say to your child, you're really familiar with this kind of bread. I really want you to try, you know, this gluten-free bread or whatever you're going for, this wheat bread, you know, this bread with olives in it, whatever you want to do, but I don't want you to have too much. You know, I love it, but, you know, I'm an adult. I only want you to have this small little bite, but that's all you can have, right? And now you're recognizing that they don't want something unfamiliar, but you're giving them a scaffold and you're making it so they can see, whoa, an adult eats a lot of olive bread, I only get a little bit, but 
okay, I'll try one little bit. So you absolutely tune into where they're feeling nervous about something new. So that's why you're giving them one teeny bite. And you're also tuning into the part of them that would like to try something new and can imagine getting older and being an adult who eats a whole piece of olive bread. And now they take a little bite and, you know, they don't die from it. They don't freak out. They just go, oh, that was interesting, but I don't really like it too much. You go, fine. And then maybe next time you have your olive bread, they want two bites. You go, no more than two bites. And you have this experience where you've tuned into them knowing they have these two drives. And as you tune into them, what's beautiful about a yes brain approach is you're actually teaching them that they can grow even in the face of a challenge like yep. eating something they're not familiar with. And that's, that's just an a, excellent it's a example. gift that keeps on giving. It's been great talking to you today, and I want to make sure. I just want to say that mention the book again because you can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon. It's the Yes Brain: How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. Child, and we've been talking to Dr. Daniel Siegel. And Dr. Siegel, just give us a website we can go to as well. Sure, you can go to my website, drdansiegel.com. D R D A N S I E. G-E-L dot com. And we have all sorts of things there, including getting connected to the, the book, The Yes Brand. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great. It was really Thank great talking. Yes. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is energy expert and Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst, Rob Barnett, author of The Economist Diet, The Surprising Formula for Losing Weight and Keeping It Off. Co-authors Rob Barnett and Christopher Payne are two formerly obese economists who started as colleagues at Bloomberg and soon became allies in creating a practical plan to lose weight, keep it off, and help others do the same. They reveal that today's obesity epidemic has everything to do with the economy. A supply glut of cheap and fattening foods tempts us to eat too much, while a slew of fad diets and light products offer quick fixes that are not realistic in the long run. Barnett and Payne lost their excess weight, a combined 125 pounds, by applying what they know best, economics, to their waistlines. Uh, Rob Barnett has an MA in economics from Boston University and has a degree in electrical engineering as well. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Rob. Real pleasure to join you. Happy to come on and talk about our dieting success. Yeah, everybody wants to hear about dieting and... uh, First of all, I want to say I graduated from Boston University also, but in psychology. Um, Okay, economics, no one thinks, or I don't think of, and I think many people probably don't, you don't think about economics and dieting. They just kind of don't go together in the same sentence. So explain that to us. And obviously you've had success because you and your co-author, you lost 125 pounds between the two of you. How much weight did you lose? Well, I personally peaked at about 250 pounds, and I'm about 70 pounds lighter today. And uh, we actually think economics has a lot to do with the issue of dieting. I mean, we think economics explains, in some sense, why America and the world has struggled with obesity in the first place. If you look at the data, as our GDP per capita has increased through time, so is our consumption of food per capita. There's no secret here. We simply eat too much, uh, just like Chris and I used to do. And so because it is an economic phenomenon, this wealth and abundance that we've had, uh, we think that economics plays a role in helping us to uh, curb our appetites in, in some sense. Frankly, we think the nutritional approach to dieting, unfortunately, has failed us. Uh, we already knew that salad was good for you, that a bag of potato chips or candy bar wasn't, yet we failed at our own efforts despite knowledge in the past. So we think we've got a sort of interesting set of behaviors that are sort of founded in more economic principles that that we think could help folks who are trying to lose weight like we did. Okay, hold our hands. How do we do it? Obviously, that's what what the book is about, but how... How do we do that? I mean, it doesn't have to do with the nutritional stuff that we kind of traditionally, I guess, adhere to when it comes to dieting. You're right. It hasn't worked. I mean, yeah. Um, So, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, what do we, yeah. The first thing, the the most important thing uh, is if, if you're listening to this interview and you're struggling with your weight, what I would say is don't stop, run out to your store and buy 
a scale, especially if you don't have one, and start standing on it every single day. Uh, if you can't measure it, you can't control it. This is a concept that's quite known in the business world. Data, certain kinds of data are very important, but you've got to measure the right thing. At the end of the day, folks who are struggling with their weight, they're trying to control what they weigh on the scale, not how many calories they eat, not how many steps they take, not the fat content of the food. There's so many things that you could measure, and we're not saying those things are useless, but the thing that matters the most is your weight. And you, if, if, you want to, if you want to lose weight, we think you need laser-like precision on that number. And we think economics a little bit helps to explain why, because despite all the knowledge in the world, we were already talking about that nutritional approach that hasn't worked. People day in, day out, make decisions that are not wise with the kinds of food they're putting in their body. That knowledge of stepping on the scale every day will allow you, with nearly real-time precision, to see the effects of your choices on what you weigh. I promise you, if you go out and eat a pizza tonight, you're going to weigh a couple more pounds on the scale tomorrow morning. I've got years of experience of weighing myself every day. It's a very powerful metric that helps to cut through the irrational behaviors that you might otherwise adopt if you're hungry. I think that is an excellent example, and I, I, I do exactly that, what you're talking about. And I think what people do is it's very easy to fool yourself, kind of this is, I think, what you're saying, because, you know, you can eat nutritionally, you can eat well, you don't have to be eating fast foods, but you can be eating too much of a good thing, and you'll gain weight. You know, instead of having a six-ounce steak, you were eating a 12-ounce steak or, or even whatever it is, you can eat too much of it, and you get on that scale, and you are you gained weight or you're overweight and that but the scale doesn't lie i guess is what you're saying so you can i think that's great advice all right so you have to i, I think i think people push back on it sometimes i think there's some reticence that folks have about knowing that number but i've turned around and say if you're overweight or obese, like I used to be. I was severely obese. I had a BMI of approaching 35. How tall are you? I, I mean, I was, I was, I'm uh, 5'10". I'm, I was a hefty individual. And um, th the fact that I was obese, it was no secret to anyone. I mean, it, it, it's quite evident to all of my friends and family. They may not have said anything. So at the end of the day, seeing that number on the scale each morning is not something that you need to fear. Uh, we would say embrace it because the, the, the fact of your weight is, is something that everyone can see. We just think that, that clarity of that number can help. And there's plenty of other things you can do, but that is the critical thing that I would start with. Okay, so get on the scale. We start with that. So now once we're on the scale and we are weighing ourselves every day, and maybe we, you're the example, you weigh 250 pounds, um, then what's next? What, what's the next step or, that we do? Or we do it in conjunction right. with getting on the scale every day? So, so I think a lot of the micro habits that we would call them are influenced by our learnings from the scale. But one of the things that you'll quickly learn if you're stepping on the scale every day is that 
having a slim waistline, having your weight in control is just not consistent with three square meals a day. Um, We recommend really what we would term as one square meal a day rather than three. Now, we still sit down, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but two of our meals are light. A bowl of cereal for breakfast, an apple, something like that, very light. That's sufficient. Lunch, a small salad, uh, especially if dinner is going to be your main meal for the day. And I'm not talking about having one splurge per day where you go out and eat a whole pizza. I'm just saying a sort of rational meal that, you, that, that you know, a meat and a few side dishes, if that happens to be uh, your dietary preference. Uh, one of the things that we failed to understand, both Chris and I, when we were at our maximum weights, was that thin people behave differently than overweight and obese people. And sometimes we'd be out with our friends and I would say, oh man, woe is me. I am sitting here obese and my thin friend or thin family member sitting next to me, they ate the same thing that I did. I must be predisposed for this. I, I must be doing something wrong. In hindsight, the thing that we weren't doing was following all of our friends around, seeing the meals they ate prior to the ones we saw, where we ate the same thing, or the ones after. And frankly, given our modern sedentary lifestyles, I think you'll find that three, what I would say, typical American meals just aren't consistent with the slim waistline. And, and there's nothing written in stone about the notion of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's really a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. It's only a couple hundred years old. So we haven't been sitting down for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for thousands of years or something like that. So what we would say is, look, the traditions of our society are to break bread three times a day, but you can't have three big meals. Uh, it will not for the vast majority of humans, in our view, be consistent with, uh, with, uh, with the thin waistline. There's no, there's no sugarcoating it in some sense. You, you're going to have to train yourself to eat less. Okay, eat less, three, one square meal a day, and then two other lighter meals, and or can you eat smaller meals, like six smaller meals a day? Um, you know, eat because some people do that and maintain their weight. That's another way of doing it. Like you say, it's not written in stone that you have to eat three meals a day necessarily. Well, you know, it's a good question, and I would caution anybody listening, especially if they struggle with their weight, about this notion of grazing or maybe having six square meals a day. It's sort of in vogue in some circles. But I know for myself, and Chris as well, Every opportunity that we have to, to sit down and eat food is an opportunity to overeat. So we recommend kind of limiting your interactions with food because of that propensity. Again, at the end of the day, for most Americans, independent of where they sit on the income distribution, there's no financial constraint really holding them back from overeating. Yeah, the, the, the cost of going and bagging, buying a bag of chips or, or a candy bar or even something that maybe has a more healthier connotation like a granola bar, it's just not going to be enough. The, the financial cost in the moment is just not going to be enough to overcome the, 
tendencies that we would have to overeat. At the in economic terms, there's this concept of uh, what what they would behavioral economists would call a bandwidth tax on thinking. Now, traditionally, this is used to talk about folks who, when they're short of cash, do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, They do payday loans and payday lending things that don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. They're not, quote, unquote, rational. Same thing is true with hunger. The, uh, The... when you are hungry, you're not going to always do what is rational uh, in, in the sense of you already probably know that you probably shouldn't grab the bag of chips or the candy bar, but you do it anyway. So a lot of the, the rules, weighing yourself every day, one square meal a day, not grazing, are really intended to help you overcome this bandwidth tax on thinking or this irrational behavior that is prompted by hunger. Uh, One of the other things, though, that I'd recommend that folks give a try is that um, I mentioned calories at the start, and, and what I would say is use calorie information to your advantage when you are sitting down for a meal. We think it's very difficult to count calories in the long run, but you can use that information on a daily basis to nudge you in a better direction. Some people assume that if they... Oh, go ahead, Catherine. No, I was going to say, I think that's one of, you know, personally myself, I, you, well, you, you say in the book, I guess, you know, deploy data be calorie conscious, but not a calorie counter. I would consider myself probably a little a mix of both, but I am conscious and I do calorie conscious. But I do try to, and I think you suggest this. If there is information about calories, the restaurants now will tell you how many calories are in not all restaurants, but in a a dish or a meal, or I always look on the packages, is this a good, at the grocery store to see how many calories, if that's available on something that I'm buying. I don't buy, I don't buy uh, processed foods. Um, So um, calorie conscious, but not, but not a calorie counter, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Well, we are. That's the, that's the way. That's the shorthand of it. And there's some really good reasons why. Because one of the reasons that diets fail in the long run is because people don't permanently shift behavior. At the end of the day, many diets out there can help you lose weight in the short run, but it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And we think that calorie counting, sure, it, it can help you get, get some control over uh, your weight and, and the foods you're putting in your body. But are you going to count the calories for the rest of your life? If not, we'd recommend some other t- techniques. So again, though, what we, to your point about calorie counting in general, we think we think it's kind of akin to an uh, uh, economic planning exercise for a communist economy probably not going to work in the long run, uh, and it's quite challenging to do. But that being said, it's an important n- number that can help guide you. One of the things that I would observe is that a lot of folks would assume, hey, if I'm out at a restaurant and I'm getting a salad, it must be healthy. But if you look at the calorie data as a proxy from other things, what you'll see is maybe not so much. Sometimes it is so easy to go to a restaurant nowadays and get a 
salad that exceeds 750, 800 calories for, for a salad. Uh, so what we would say is when you see that kind of thing occurring, try to use that calorie information to point you towards a, a lighter salad. Uh, salad isn't automatically healthy. This is kind of true across the spectrum. It's, it's something to help guide you to a, a, a lighter, a more slimming choice uh, w- when it's available. And I think another thing you talk about is also um, don't buy these foods that low in fat, low in calories, unnecessarily, low in everything, light. Of course, they're also tasteless. That's another piece of it usually. So that doesn't mean you know buying this, those kinds of things that they are intrinsically healthy. That's really not the best thing to do. Is, is that what you're saying? We, we are very skeptical of most of those claims that are out there. The, the diet industrial complex has gotten very sophisticated at sort of confusing us about healthy norms. And most of that language, in our view, is meant to appeal to this sense of wanting to be healthy. But we are not convinced. We certainly couldn't replicate any of this in our own life. If you've got to have an occasional Coke, we think, well, might as well have the real thing. Uh, Diet soda, probably not going to do you any favors on the scale. Uh, That being said, we think you'll find it very difficult to drink very much soda and maintain a slim waistline. Occasional one, sure. I mean, but everything in life, in some sense, is about moderation. I mean, we still go out on occasion and enjoy foods that we liked when we were much heavier on the scale. We just learn that when we're not going out for one of the, for all, it, for all the other occasions, when it's not a birthday or a friend's you know, celebration of some sort, we are much more restrained. And so I think that you've you got to be very careful about uh, falling into low-fat, gluten-free, all this kind of stuff that's out there. An occasional splurge isn't going to kill you, but, but day in, day out, it's, you're going to have to have a fair amount of actual food. And, and none of these modern things that the diet industrial complex has tried to, to push upon us. It's like, by, from an economic point of view, it's like convincing people to buy things on sale, buy, buy, buy. You buy so many things on sale, you've bought more than what you <laughs> would have bought if you had bought it at full price. Is that sort of the uh, analogy? People love a deal. People are always using uh, sort of rules of thumb in their mind to, uh, to help them get, get a better deal, make a healthier decision. But what we're suggesting is that many of those rules of thumb don't lead to a good outcome. One of the things that's quite interesting in our view is that, frankly, uh, if you, we, we would actually recommend for most of the time having a pretty boring, repetitive, repetitive diet. Uh, there's a really interesting concept in economics called uh, diminishing marginal returns. And there's a good example involving food. If I give you one Oreo, you're going to really enjoy it. If I give you a whole package of Oreos and you're eating the 30th one, probably by the time you're eating the last one, you're not going to enjoy it so much. 
And so if you're eating a boring diet, you're eating the same things over, even if it's Oreos, you're going to get tired of them and you're going to lose that propensity to want to overeat. This is why you see gimmicks like people who go out and lose weight by only eating at McDonald's. This is very skeptical of doing that for health reasons and other things. But what it shows is that a sort of diet where you're eating the same kinds of things over and over again is very uh, useful from a tactical perspective, from a behavioral perspective, uh, in terms of uh, lo- you know, losing weight. Because if it's a boring diet, you're eating the sort of same things, whatever your diet preference happens to be over and over, uh, we-, we think you'll be less inclined uh, to overeat, uh, even if it's something you think you might enjoy. Great advice. Great. We have about a minute left, so there's lots more, obviously, in the book. I want to mention the book again, Energy, um, The Economist Diet, The Surprising Formula for Losing Weight and Keeping It Off, and we've been talking to Rob Barnett, who is the author and who has done just that. So, uh, Rob, just tell us where we can, what websites we can go to to find out more about the book. You can buy it on bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. Um, any other websites to keep us sort of abreast of what what you're doing? Absolutely. So our website is theeconomistdiet.com, all one word. We're also active on Twitter on the handle at econdiet. And again, the most important takeaway is, you know, certainly take a look at our book if you want to learn more, but also use the scale. Step on the scale every day. Let it be your guide. It will do powerful things for you if you're struggling with your weight. One last question in 30 seconds. Sure. How long have you, you know, you weighed your 250 pounds, lost the weight, so how long have you been thin? Absolutely. So I'm about four years into my weight loss journey, so uh, I guess I've been thin for about uh, three years uh, at this at this stage, a little over three years. Uh, my co-author, Chris, has over a decade of experience, and we started out kind of at a similar place. So sustainable weight loss is possible, but I still think about it almost every day, and, and, and I know my behavior is quite different than it used to be. Great. Congratulations. Um, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm going to say goodbye. Uh, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 